to uh, Acts chapter 2 as we uh, continue our series in the book of Acts. Um, uh, I am uh, going to read most of the chapter, therefore I'm not going to ask you to stand uh, for most of the chapter. Um, Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every uh, nation under heaven, And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, The visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, and you'll notice um, this is sort of inset, like like it's a a quote from Joel 2. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams even on my male servants and female servants in those days i will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy and i will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below blood and fire and vapor of smoke the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the lord comes the great and magnificent day and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the lord shall be saved Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with him an oath, sworn with an oath to him that he would uh, set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke 
about the resurrection of the Christ. That He was not abandoned to Hades. Nor did His flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Thus far, God's holy word. Let's pray together. Uh, We pray, O Holy Spirit, that You would be at work, even as we just sang, uh, in this Your Word uh, to conform us, Your people, more and more into the image of Christ. Use it for its purpose, whether bringing an unbeliever to saving faith, whether encouraging or and equipping a believer in the faith. We pray that you would be at work in it and by it in our own lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I know a fair number of you, um, this has kind of come up in conversation before. I know a fair number of you uh, kind of got caught up in the crown. Uh, that Netflix Netflix series uh, about uh, Queen Elizabeth II and, and taking the throne and all of that um, sort of stuff. Uh, I noticed something about that. And some of you may actually be old enough to remember uh, this detail. Um, Elizabeth and Philip were in Africa when King George, her father, died. And she's in Africa when she learns the news that her father has passed away. And she's still in Africa, hadn't left yet, the first time she hears, long live Queen Elizabeth. When she lands in London, back home, and walks into her house to go see her father's body. She's already the queen. Her her sister bowed to her. Her mother bowed to her. Her grandmother, King George's mom, bowed to her. That was season one, episode two. It wasn't until episode five that she was actually crowned. That They actually had the coronation celebration and service and all that. So it's three whole episodes where she's Queen of England not having yet had the official coronation service. In many ways, this passage is Jesus' coronation service. This passage is in essence the crowning of Christ as He now takes the throne Officially, formally, as king and ruler of creation and, and in particular of his people. Okay, he's, he's always been the king. He's the creator. John 1 tells us that everything was made by Christ. The word created all that there was. He's always been the ruler. And that's, that's not been taken away from him. We saw it in his, in his life even as um, in, in the flesh, that he could tell storms stop 
And they would say, yes, sir, and stop. He's always been the king. But the ascended Christ, the ascension now 50 days ago-ish, we now have the coronation service. The point in time at which he is finally sort of officially and formally crowned as the king and head of the church and for that matter of all of creation. First in this chapter, and we're taking the whole chapter as a chunk because it all matters, it all goes together. And I really wanted to say um, in your outline, I really wanted to, wanted to be the emissary of the king, but then I couldn't make the other words start with an E, so I just went with the spirit of the king. I mean, because then I can get all S's, and that's, yes, those kinds of things bother my ears. The chapter begins, the disciples are all in one place. They're all together. And suddenly these three sort of major significant sign events happen right there in their midst. The first is the, the sound of uh, like a mighty rushing wind. You live in North Alabama. You know the sound of mighty rushing wind. We've seen the effects of tornadoes. We've heard them pass by. We know what that sound is like. We, we get it. Or, or if you're new to the area and you're like, I haven't experienced this yet, you've heard Jim Cantore's microphone. When he's standing out on the beach as the hurricane makes landfall, you know the sound of wind. Notice the language, though. Notice the way the verse is written. They heard a sound like a mighty rushing wind. There wasn't a wind. A wind like that causes damage. It causes destruction. This, they hear that powerful wind without the accompanying destruction and damage. But they, they get it. They understand. Hey, that's, that sounds like wind. And, and it actually makes it sound like the wind is blowing down. Right? There's a sound came from heaven like a mighty rushing wind. If the wind is blowing down, run fast. Right? That's usually not... Wind comes from our side. And so there's very clearly, the, the disciples would totally understand, this sounds like rushing wind straight down on us without the destruction and damage that comes with it. And then there's, um, in addition to the sound, in addition to the, the sort of the audible uh, sign, there's a visible sign. Tongues like fire um, coming out and, and, and landing on the people without burning their hair. I, I, don't, I, I don't... You figure out how to depict that. You f- tongues... Like we draw it like fire... But it says tongues like fire. Come and rest on the disciples' head. But immediately, our, our minds should run to familiar passages. We've actually seen all of this before. And there actually are several places throughout the Old Testament that we could go, oh, this is like that. This in Acts 2 is a lot like that passage there. You remember the, the, the cloud and the glory of God filling the temple 
in Exodus 40, or the tabernacle in Exodus 40, the temple in 1 Kings 8. The, the glory covered the tabernacle, the temple, and, and filled every part of it. In fact, in, in 1 Kings 8, you're told that the, the priests couldn't do their work because it, the temple was so filled with the glory of God, they just kind of had to wait. Well, that's the same kind of imagery. The same kind of language is being used here. The sound filled the whole place where the disciples are. The tongues rested on each and every one of them. None of them gets left out. So you've got this visible sign of fire, the audible um, sign of the wind are telling the disciples that the Spirit has come to dwell with His people. You remember the pillar of fire leading God's people in the wilderness. And, and fire again, this that pillar there was intended to communicate God is with Israel. God is with them and leading them in their wandering, in their that gap between Egypt and the promised land. The same imagery is being used here. You know, the, I think I mentioned last week, you and I have this sort of idea that life would be better if I could have lived it with Jesus. You know, we have this notion that if we could have the incarnate Christ in our midst, walking around with us, if we were, could live beside, yeah, yeah Jesus is my neighbor. You know, I mean, we kind of have this notion that that would be a better existence. And, and what Jesus tells his disciples, in, particularly in John, is your better existence is with me gone. And the Spirit here instead. The image that you and I are supposed to sort of have after the first two or three verses of Acts 2 is actually an encouragement that, that God no longer simply lives with His people, but He actually dwells in His people. After the first two or three verses of Acts 2, the temple is no longer the temple. The temple was God's dwelling place within His people. You and I. He's taken up residence in us. And we, therefore, become the new and greater and better temple. But then there's a third sign in verse 4. And everybody in the room, all 120 of them uh, at least, begin to speak in other tongues, we're told. I'm going to save some of the tongues discussion for later. Uh, let me just make this observation. The word other ought to be enough to communicate to us that, that uh, Luke has in mind other known languages and not... Um, ecstatic, unintelligible utterances of some sort. Because the people, these disciples begin, notice what they're doing, verse 11. 
They're not in some private prayer language that nobody understands. We're told in verse 11 that what they're actually doing in these other languages is proclaiming the works of God. And so, in the languages of of all these people from these surrounding regions, the disciples are proclaiming God's works to them. You know, it's funny how you and I are, are... rather adept at missing the forest for the trees. Uh, we, we are so quick to miss the point because we get hung up on a detail here or there. It's easy to get hung up on the word tongues and the word prophesy and miss the, the obvious sort of big picture in Acts chapter 2. This is a... It's, it's, a, it's a shift in eras. It's, a, it's an epoch shift. It's that, that episode of, of Friends when uh, the girls, uh, Monica and Rachel, lose their room on a bet and they have to trade rooms with the boys and they're crying. They're saying this is the end of an era. That, that, that's part of the point here. A new era in the life of the church has begun. It's Christ's crowning moment. How do we know? Why do we say that? Because the Spirit can only come. The Spirit would only be sent by the Father and the Son if Christ's work on earth were complete, was complete, whichever verb belongs there. In other words, The sending of the Spirit tells you that Christ has been accepted as an acceptable sacrifice, atonement for you and me. If Christ's life, death, burial, resurrection had not been sufficient, if there had been something missing, we could not have the Spirit yet. And so we actually have proof. This is evidence that Christ's work for you and me, is done. And He now sits at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning. And this is indeed His coronation service, His crowning moment, the point at which you know Christ's work in the flesh on earth is complete and He's now ascended to the Father and been accepted as our sacrifice. So we see the the Spirit of the King has been sent because the King rules and reigns and because the King sends His emissary to live in us rather than merely with us or among us. And because His work has been accepted as our sacrifice. But second, we also see in this chapter the story of the King For Peter, the events going on um, in the upper room, maybe an outer room in the temple, we're not exactly told where they are, uh, but the events going on around him aren't a surprise if only we knew God's Word that well. Now, you, you do remember, I've said this once, we'll say this several times along the way, at this point... The events of Act 2, 
Put yourself in the, in the events of Act 2. At this point, none of the New Testament has been written. And Gutenberg hasn't been born yet. So not everybody had 3, 4, 5, 10, 12 Bibles lying around their house. And for that matter, on some iDevice in their pocket. They're not everywhere. And yet, these guys knew Scripture well enough. Peter goes, y'all, what are you worried about? This is no surprise. Joel talked about this. We go, now hold on a second. Where's Joel again? I know that's in the Old Testament. He's one of the prophets, which means I'm going to have a really hard time finding him. And he probably talks about some weird stuff. We, we read about locusts in our Old Testament reading a few minutes ago. And he's got it memorized. Peter knows. Peter, oh, well, he responds with, y'all, these people aren't drunk. Number one, the ABC store isn't open yet. It's just 9 o'clock in the morning. Number two, this is the Bible. Joel told, what are you missing? You're missing Joel 2. And we go, well, of course, yeah, Joel 2. We've got that. Let me find it real quick. And so Peter connects the dots for us and for his audience between Joel 2 and then he quotes from Psalm 110 and Psalm 16 also. And we're not going to unpack all the things that Peter connects for us. We're not going to connect all the dots. We're looking at this chapter from a larger sort of, you know, maybe 15, 20,000 foot view rather than from the, the word and sort of detailed view. But Peter recognizes that these events have been talked about before. And that receiving the Spirit has, is just a fulfillment of the promise of the Father, which actually Luke told us back in the beginning of chapter 1. And if this has been promised by the Father, it had to be promised in the Old Testament because the New Testament hasn't even been recorded yet. And so Peter quotes a chunk of Joel 2. And notice, the Old Testament tells us that the Spirit is coming. God, through the prophet Joel, said to Israel back then, said to His Old Covenant people, I will one day, as evidence of my deliverance, and of my salvation, and of my redemption, and love and mercy for my people, I'm going to pour out the Spirit. See, and, and you got this, you got a, at least a, a glimpse of this in our Old Testament reading a few minutes ago. There were locusts that came and devoured the place. Joel 2, right before the part where Peter starts to quote, talks about that there were locusts. And I'm going to regrow and rebuild what the locusts, my army, destroyed in your midst. And so you can imagine the Old Testament people thinking, God's abandoned us. The locusts ate everything. It's all gone. We're doomed. He, he's quit. He's turned his back on us. And they get a promise. There's coming a day when I will pour out my Spirit. And the people who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so Peter grabs that promise and says, Guys, you're living this. 
We're living in that promise even now. But I can't help but notice the way the rest of Peter's sermon goes. The promises of the Spirit. The Spirit has just been given. You would think that if the real sort of focus and glory point of New Testament Christianity was the Spirit, if the goal was to be to get some second um, second baptism of the Spirit, some greater baptism, you would think that Peter would now spend all his time talking about the Spirit. He doesn't say a word. He says the giving of the Spirit was promised in Joel and promised salvation. Oh, by the way, where does that salvation come? And the rest of his sermon is about Jesus. It's not about the Spirit at all. And notice what he says in verse 22. Men of Israel, Jesus of Nazareth, Joel promised signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. And so Peter then says in verse 22, Jesus of Nazareth attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. He sees the fulfillment of this redemption of God's people in Christ. And he says, this Christ, verse 23, you crucified. This man, this Christ, the very one that Joel talked about is the very one you sent to the cross. But, verse 24, God raised him from the dead. Which, of course, then reminds Peter of the Psalms. They may, it appears that they're now in the temple area, whether they were in the upper room at the beginning of chapter 2 and then walked to the temple, or whether they were already in sort of an outer room of the temple when the, when the chapter began. It's not really told, it's not really clear. But then Peter takes David's words. David, the, the great king of Israel, the one that, that the people of Israel look to as the great model king. And he says, you know what? David talked about a Messiah, a Redeemer, a king who would come from my line who would not see decay. His body will not decay. And guess what? David, and then he, he points to the church graveyard. Oh, that churches would have graveyards anymore pointed to the church graveyard and says, David's tomb is right out there. Go see it. His body's still there. David wasn't talking about David. David was talking about the promised Messiah, the one who was to come. So David's proclamation is about Jesus. Peter's audience knew the Old Testament. They studied the Old Testament. They Memorized chunks of the Old Testament. And so he runs to passages familiar to them and proclaims Christ in their hearing. In other words, the Bible is about Jesus. The Old Testament is about Jesus. It's not about Israel. It's not about you. And it's certainly not about the United States. Don't jump into that mess. That's what much of the world around us would want. Well, let's just claim Old Testament stuff and make it about our country. That's not the passage at all. The Old Testament's about Jesus. It anticipates 
the promised Messiah and King. And Peter begins to unpack that for us. From Joel 2, from Psalm 110, from Psalm 16. But I want to back up a little bit for us because there's another connection that sort of is outside of Peter's scope in his sermon. Because we could easily look back to Genesis 11. Do you remember Genesis 11? Now I got no idea. I don't know. What's... Mankind decided to build a tower. Let's build this big giant tower and climb our way up to heaven. Do you remember what God did to stop that process? He introduced languages. He confused their speech so that the Dutch couldn't understand the Italians, who couldn't understand Afrikaans, who couldn't understand Spanish, who couldn't understand English. Nobody could understand each other. And so progress stopped. And in Acts 2, God undoes that curse. As mankind would seek to climb to heaven, God introduces languages to make that impossible. But now that heaven has come to mankind, He brings their languages back together again. He gives His disciples and an, an, a miraculous ability to speak languages they've never studied, they've never spoken before. God overcomes the language barrier for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel. He introduced the language barrier because mankind wanted to preach man. He took away the language barrier so that mankind could preach Christ. So we have this undoing, this unworking of the curse of Genesis 11. The Bible is about, the whole Bible, the Old Testament is about Jesus. And lastly, we see the subjects of the king. To whom is, is uh, Peter preaching? In verses 5 through 12, we get this glimpse. It's Pentecost, right? So that's the, the Old Testament, Old Covenant meal of first fruits. And so people have traveled from, well, east, north, south, west, uh, remote islands and distant deserts. That's sort of the pattern of these nations in verses 5 through 12. Uh, he gives us a, a glimpse from, from the east, from the west, from the north, from the south. And then this, he uses Crete, sort of the remote island, and Arabia, this distant desert. Uh, that's the, the pattern of the languages. And he gives the disciples the ability to proclaim the gospel to all of those people. Many people today want tongues to be, you know, if you just learn to say Danny Onahonda right, then you can, you know, speak in tongues. It's these syllables that don't really make much sense. They're, we don't know what you're saying, some private prayer language stuff. In this passage, what amazes the people is not that they couldn't understand the disciples. What amazes these travelers is that they could. What stands out is, wait a minute, 
These people are all Galileans. That, by the way, says two things about these 120. They're all from Galilee, which means they all speak the same language and dialect. But they're all from Galilee. They're not, um, they're not very educated people. It's, it's actually a slight on the preachers. In other words, and, and, and southern people get this, right? We, we, we speak with this language and this accent and at a speed that makes people think we don't have shoes or electricity. And everything's just backwards. And we just got running water like last Thursday and all that sort of stuff. They look down on us just because they think, we, if you talk that, that, that slowly with that accent, you don't have much education. That's what's going on here. These are Galileans, meaning I know for a fact they haven't studied Parthian or Phrygian or Dutch or Italian. They don't speak those languages, and yet we hear them in our own native tongue. What stands out to the foreigners is not He's uttering random syllables that I can't comprehend. That's not what they say. What they say is, these are people that shouldn't know my language and do. I com- not that I don't understand. I completely understand what they're saying. So the point is, there's no way to read Acts 2 and think of tongues as anything other than other languages. This, that's, that's foreign to the chapter. These are people from every tongue, tribe, nation. That that sounds familiar. Where do I know that phrase? That's a phrase from Revelation that envisions the global growth of the kingdom of God. In other words, before they've... Jesus just said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. They haven't left Jerusalem yet. And the gospel is already going to the ends of the earth. You're getting a foretaste. You're getting a glimpse of the fulfillment of God's bringing in His people. Not just Israelites, but welcoming the Gentiles into the people of God. And and notice how they respond. Verse 37, we stopped reading here. They heard this and they were cut to the heart and said to Peter, brothers, what shall we do? And the response comes back, repent, be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the, of the Holy Spirit. And that day, the last phrase of verse 41 About 3,000 souls were added to their number. The people of God, yet unconverted, are convicted and convinced by the Spirit and repent of their sins and turn in faith to Christ. They ask the very question we ask. We should be asking, what must I do? What do I need In light of my guilt and sin, what do I need? The answer comes back, turn to Jesus. 
that's what you need. Repent, believe, receive the sign of of the covenant of entrance into the covenant of people of God. And you too shall be saved and receive the Spirit. Let me make a couple of applications from this passage. First, are you a subject of the King? Can you say that I've, I've said, what must I do? I've turned in faith to Christ. I've repented and turned away from the old self and turned in faith to Christ. If you haven't, that's your greatest need. Nothing else in the passage matters if you're outside of Christ. Run to Him. Run to the cross. There, find forgiveness. A second application. Let me make just... Some of you are wondering... Now, wait a minute. We've, we've talked about Jesus with other people in Athens and we still aren't 3,000 people. What gives? Let me just make this one observation. Look at verse 13. Not everyone who hears the Gospel is going to repent and believe. Look at verse 13. Others mocked and said they're filled with new wine. These people are drunk. Just because 3,000 were converted that day doesn't mean we should expect 3,000 to be converted every time we proclaim Christ. We would love for that to happen and we should be praying for that to happen. But the truth is, there are people in the passage who actually mock the disciples as being drunk. And instead of responding in faith, they mock and, and make fun. Lastly, a final application. Let me, let me just make this observation. The empire over which Queen Elizabeth ruled when she first took the throne is no more. There was a time when the sun never set on the British Empire. Because wherever the sun was, there was some place that was a subject of the British monarch. That's no longer true. Everything's been given back. Everything's gone. Everything's been turned over to the people. The, the empire over which Queen Elizabeth II rules today is significantly smaller than the empire over which she ruled when she took the throne. That's not true for Jesus. And this passage shows us that. His kingdom's actually growing. His kingdom's expanding. There are more and more people every day bowing their knee in faith to Christ. Be encouraged. Don't watch sort of the British monarchy losing land left and right. Well, it's all done now. But losing land left and right and think, well, maybe that's what's happening to Jesus. This passage shows us His kingdom expanding. And we see it today. People converted left and right. And we long for the day when truly Jesus rules by His Word and Spirit over people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and language. Oh, that He would use us to accomplish that goal. Let's pray. Our great God and our King, we thank You for the, the promise of the Spirit. 
a promise that that once united uh, by faith to Christ, we receive the Spirit. We thank you that there's there's no uh, second blessing. There's no time lapse. There's no wondering if we have the Spirit or not. You tell us that those who are in Christ have the Spirit. We thank you for the promise that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And for Peter's sermon, Peter's own proclamation, when the people said, well, what should we do? He said, well, call on the name of the Lord. And so we pray, our great God and our King, that we would be a people that calls on Christ. Would you use us to bring more and more people into that relationship? To grow your kingdom, to expand your kingdom. And we long for the day when Jesus shall reign wherever the sun does its successive journeys run. Would you hasten that day? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.